You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing... Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR's Saturday breakfast show. And today we are going to go and find out a little bit about uh, the uh, stuff that's going on with facial recognition technology. You might have come across uh, a choice, um, a choice, the magazine and uh, organisation that looks into uh, uh uh, fairness in, in uh, the commercial world, really, for for uh, consumers, us, uh, has uh, set up a um, a call out to uh, a, a survey to uh, you know what what is it a, a um, <laughs> you know they want people to sign a petition in in regards to the use of uh, facial recognition uh, technology that was. Uh, uh, mooted by Kmart, Bunnings and Goodfellows alerting people to the fact that this is in, in fact what they were doing. Uh, and uh, it leads to a whole discussion about uh, uh, infringement of uh, rights and uh, consent and uh, the rest of it. Uh, and uh, I've got someone to have a chat with about this, uh, Lauren Perry. She's from UTS, that's the uh, University of Technology in Sydney, and they've just uh, done a report. She and uh, Professor Nicholas Davis and Professor Edward Santo, who used to be a um, human rights commissioner, they've just put out a facial recognition technology report and uh, with uh, heavily uh, discussing the notion of uh, a model law uh, approach to... uh, this, that uh, it needs um, legislation, they say. A regulatory failure has left our community vulnerable to its more harmful uses. This is uh, facial recognition, ranging from constant surveillance to discrimination and even unlawful arrest. And, of course, within the context of uh, demonstration and police uh, militarisation, uh, this becomes more and more uh, an issue. 
to be discussed. Anyway, I I caught up with Lauren and she uh, talks to me about uh, various elements in relation to this. After that, we're going to uh, go up to Brisbane and we're going to hear a little bit about what's been going on with the disruption of Land Forces Weapons Expo, some of the activists that are involved up there and some of the uh, reasons for why they're there and why it's an important issue to have uh, people uh, defending uh, peace, as it were. This is the week that was, follows, and we're, then we're going to have a chat with uh, director Sue Thompson, who's got this fantastic film out called Undercover, which investigates uh, and talks with uh, people who are in the situation of uh, not homelessness, but having experienced homelessness and the issue of uh, the chronic rise of older women being left without anywhere to live as they grow older. Uh, That's a film that's going to come out uh, on uh, the 6th of October and it's it's got a whole uh, whole lot of stuff to... um, It's going to be uh, released in the uh, Palace locations and on World Homeless Day, which is October the 10th, uh, when you go and see it at these palace locations, you will um, be donating $5 from every ticket sold to uh, um, the Australian National Homeless Collective. Anyway, so this is something to be, uh, um, be alerted, put on your calendar. And uh, the uh, last report is going. We're going to go down to Port Melbourne, and we're going to hear from the. Uh, I didn't know how to say it, but uh, Jackson uh, brought it up in uh, Stick Together. The uh, cough uh, plasterboard uh, workers that are on have been on the grass were locked out, and uh, we went down and had a chat with them to find out more about what's going on down there. But before we get on with the business. Some net announcements. Ooh, nothing happened. From the 1st to the 7th of October in Mianjin, Brisbane, the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance will be held to disrupt and interrupt the efforts of the military-industrial complex who generate conflict as the byproduct of profit. Disrupt Land Forces is a decentralised, intersectional, direct action campaign taking place over seven days through creative and collaborative action in resistance to Land Forces, the largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. You can hear more about those profiteering off death and destruction and the history of anti-military activism in so-called Australia on 3CR Community Radio in the coming weeks. So head to Mianjin on the 1st to the 7th of October 2022 for the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance. For more information, visit disruptlandforces.org. A 3CR supporter. The New International Bookshop will be having a Little Red Book Fair on Saturday, October the 8th. Come and grab journal bundles, $3 secondhand books, 10% off new books, and mass discounts on books by the radical independent publisher Interventions. 
Join us in the basement of 54 Victoria Street, Carlton on Saturday, October the 8th from 9am to 5pm. New International Bookshop is a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, as I said at the beginning when I was giving you a lowdown on what we're covering this morning, facial recognition. Now it was really uh, quite mind-blowing to realise that uh, Kmart, Bunnings and Goodfellows were uh, scanning all the people coming into their shop uh, without, you know, (laughs) people being given the okay about uh, such things. But uh, because there's a whole lot of... uh, aspects to facial recognition technology which uh, puts a whole range of things into uh, uh, consideration, Uh, you know, mass surveillance, that sort of stuff. Uh, And it might lead to efficiencies, which uh, is great for uh, some people, but uh, on the other hand, what are the things that are at stake? So I got to speak to Lauren Perry. She's from UTS, that's the University of Technology, Sydney, about a recent report that they've put together uh, and the model law that they think uh, is a good idea to uh, uh, curtail any of the uh, less uh, than savoury aspects of the use of facial recognition technology. So here she is. There was a very interesting thing that was... uh, a campaign that's been put forward by Choice around the announcement that um, Bunnings, Kmart and uh, Goodfellows wants to use facial recognition technology. That brings up a whole range of issues, doesn't it? This whole concept of uh, privacy and uh, other kind of freedoms that people might find quite challenging. You use that uh, as one of the papers, that challenge that Choice has put forward as uh, as part of your analysis of the need for legislation or rules around facial recognition use. Can you talk to us about that kind of everyday situation that would confront uh, Australian citizens? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Um, the thing that you know is, is most common when you talk to um, Australians and people in the street about facial recognition is that I guess up until this this choice investigation, most people are really just thinking about using facial recognition to unlock their smartphone or perhaps their their work device um, in order for that that convenience factor. A lot of people up until this investigation didn't realise just how many other uh, businesses or um, or shopping centres or even law enforcement are using facial recognition in other ways, you know, from a, um, a security perspective um, and those sorts of things that raise really significant concerns for privacy, particularly um, in the absence of any legal protections specifically in Australia around facial recognition technology. Now, there's some ideas around uh, uh, the uh, y- the usefulness of um, uh, facial recognition. Can you talk to us about why uh, it's considered to be useful? Yeah, so I guess um, similar to some of the the um, context, I was just saying that that it can be really quick and simple instead of having to remember a lot of different passwords on your own personal devices. 
Um, if you're the one that's programmed, you know, your smartphone to unlock with your face, then, then you've got that choice and you've got that control and you've got that ease of access. Um, additionally, there's some other really, um, really positive uses of facial recognition being trialled, like to find missing children or in other humanitarian circumstances. Um, I know it was trialled at, at, um, in some different places during the bushfires in Australia for people who had lost legal documents in, in the fire that, that they could have their identity verified through facial recognition. Um, and even for people with disability, we can see that um, that some types of facial analysis can be really useful to identify emotions in friends around them, potentially if they're blind or if they have a vision impairment. So there are some really positive and innovative uses of this technology, um, but and we want to balance that innovation whilst protecting from the potential harms of other uses. We probably should go through the difference between facial verification, facial analysis and facial detection. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, that, no, that's right. So in our model law report, we, we try to, I guess, um, create a bit of a discussion around these three different types of facial recognition because they are quite different. So as, as you've just said, um, we've got uh, facial verification, which is what some people call one-to-one. -one. So that's what you'd use on your on your smartphone where your phone has a stored um, blueprint of your face and, and, and just your face. And when you open it um, or, or use your face to open your phone, it's just matching against the picture of yourself. So that's the verification. Um, and and that's a, that, that's a type of pass passports, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So in different contexts, when you're, you know, at, at the smart gate, um, and they're they're checking against your passport photo and your face uh, when you're walking through. Yeah. And the other one, uh... and the second type. Yeah, yeah. The second type of of um, facial recognition um, we call facial identification. So that's uh, what can also be called one to many. So um, potentially the police might have a photo of. Um, someone who's committed a crime or someone who's stolen something and they're matching that face against a huge database of other faces of other potential suspects. So uh, naturally the risks there increase because you're bringing in a whole lot of other different identities um, into the field there. And then I guess the third case, that's right, yes. Yeah, so, so analysis is really interesting and it, it's really experimental, uh, experimental as well still. Um, this is where the face recognition technology is actually trying to infer um, something about you because of what it can see in your face. So that might be, you know, your gender or your age. It might be able to, um, you know, analyse uh, your racial background or even things like emotions. And so there's there's a lot of concern because this technology is quite um, quite basic and, and definitely not proven. And it's also quite uh, error prone for people who are from different racial backgrounds, um, who, people who have disability as well. So that's, a, that's an area that we're quite concerned about. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, uh, the thing about uh, com using computers to come up with uh, outcomes in this way people feel that uh, they, they are, um, what is it, uh, can't be challenged because they're, they're not human, they're better than human, as it were, in analysing things. But actually there are elements around uh, this technology which um, make it not foolproof. It's not foolproof at all. 
Yeah, that's right, Annie. So, um, what, what you were kind of describing there is is a is um, a term some people use, uh, technology deference, where people go, oh, but it's a computer, it's a, an algorithm that's making this, um, you know, this analysis or this decision, and therefore it has to be right. But um, as we know, when you when you stop to think about it, well, actually, all computer programs and algorithms and and facial recognition systems are developed by humans, and you know humans are, are fallible as well, and and systems you know improve and develop over time, but they're definitely not always accurate. And so it is really important um, that we start having conversations around um, you know how data is being tested or where it's being um, you know accrued from that inform these these um, complex decision-making systems. Yeah, and you found, uh, looking at all this documentation from across the world, that uh, despite the fact that the um, uh, algorithms and the software are be increasingly becoming uh, more sophisticated, uh, they still have uh, particular uh, uh, problems with uh, women uh, people of colour and disability, people with disability. That's fascinating, isn't it? Because that correlates with people who often are discriminated in our society. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a really um, uh, sad truth, actually, that, that some of these technologies, such as facial recognition, are often used in contexts where... Um, you know, they're being used on people who are already uh, vulnerable, already discriminated against. Um, and when the, the technology is less accurate for those individuals, that's when you've got a whole, uh, you know, list of potential human rights risks. So uh, just, you know, by way of example, uh, there was a case a couple of years ago in Detroit in the US where uh, police were using facial recognition to try and identify uh, a criminal suspect and the technology actually identified the wrong individual and he was a you know an african-american man um you know with with black skin uh, and we know that these cohorts of individuals are often much more you know policed and patrolled anyway uh, and so that actually led to a, a false arrest of an individual um this is just an aside i used to teach and i used to teach uh, a lot of people from different backgrounds you know from south america right across Pakistan and a whole range. And I, I found that I had a special gift. I could actually identify the people in my classes. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, but, but one of the things that was odd to me was that I had a confusion about two people and because they had such similar faces. One of them was from Pakistan and one was from Chile. Which I thought was it taught me a lesson that uh, around um, and it makes that's why I found the facial recognition thing very interesting because I wondered if computers have the same problem. That is really interesting, um, and and yes, I mean I guess what we've found um, that up until this point. These technologies have traditionally been, uh, well, I guess the ones that are, are being used in um, in Australia and, and Europe and, and the states have been developed by predominantly white individuals and often, you know, white men working in um, Silicon Valley or other kind of tech hubs around the world. And the data that the, te the technology is being trained on is not representative of the whole world and, and doesn't take into account that diversity and those those nuances between um, between humans um, and I think that also kind of speaks to the nature of 
the facial recognition technology as well is that the human face is so special for a number of different reasons. You know, it's it's not only um, you know your unique kind of biometric identifier that you can't change very easily, unlike a password, but it's also how we relate human to human and how we, um, you know, understand how we're feeling and, and, and those sorts of things. So there's a whole range of different issues all caught up in, in the facial recognition conversation. Let's have a look at the uh, model uh, law that, that you're talking about and around the um, issues that you believe you need to contend with in order to have some fairness in this. Yeah, so so coming to the, the, the model law exactly, we've tried to come up with a framework that can mean that Australia would be able to benefit from the good uses of the technology um, and also protect Australians from, from those negative risks. And the way that we've done that um, is through a risk assessment process, which ultimately would determine, you know, whether each different use is um, base or elevated or high risk. And then from that, there'd be different sorts of um, legal requirements that stem from that. Which is which is very similar to an OH&S uh, risk analysis arrangement. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's a number of different areas where, um, you know, in regulation or other kind of policies where the risk-based approach um, is what we're quite used to because, you know, it, it's it's a bit more nuanced than putting blanket bans on, on particular uses. It means that we can actually start having a bit more of a sophisticated conversation about all these different types of the technology. Well, I actually wrote down something from your report, but a risk-based approaches to regulation can help manage uncertainty across systems as a whole, rather than dealing with individual cases of harm after they have occurred. Absolutely, that, that's actually that's a really good point that you've pulled out there, and and that was really what um, I guess drove us to to come up with this approach is that we, and as has already been you know the case around the world, is that we're already seeing harms come from the use of facial recognition technology, and as this technology is becoming more and more ubiquitous and more and more rolled out um, around Australia and around other parts of the world. We don't want to get to a point where all of these harms are occurring and we're responding to them after they've happened. So by mitigating the risks and, and taking that sort of approach, we're um, making sure that we can stop those harms before they're occurring. You have a, a an example in the report around the notion that um, some software that's been developed in, you know, laboratory conditions, as it were, even they will come up with, say, 0.01% error. And you, mm. and if in the in the real world that is amplified, so the example you give, if they're going through the um, airport in Sydney and uh, they make that kind of a level of error say a million people go through there and that would equal 10,000 people with uh, a significant error involved. So there are things that need to be dealt with, um, even if it is an efficiency tool. Um, you, uh, Your analysis is a risk-based approach tied to international human rights law. So can you talk to that? Yeah, so when we were doing our research for putting together this law, we'd spent a lot of time early on looking at what was, um, you know, perhaps 
had been tried in other parts of the world around facial recognition. Um, and I guess the different approaches that some countries are taking is either um, the you know, do nothing approach, which is sort of similar to what Australia has done up until this point, where we've got a number of existing laws, such as the Privacy Act, that aren't specifically tailored to facial recognition, but, you know, they cover some of the issues there. So, I mean, that's one approach. You know, the, the next approach is just a, a moratorium or a blanket ban on the use of facial recognition in different contexts. Um, but what we were trying to do is say, okay, there's actually a better way of doing this by creating a specific law and, and how should we frame that? And, um, you know, I come from a human rights background and so there's another one of our co-authors and we found that this uh, framework is actually a really robust way of, of looking at the, the opportunities and the risks um, and also a way of doing it that this could uh, in fact be adaptable in other parts of the world as well. And so we were, you know, throughout our consultation process, we've involved a number of different international voices and the language of human rights and, and international human rights law is something that is, um, uh, you know, recognised globally. And so in terms of having a law that, that could be applied to different jurisdictions, um, it's been a good way forward. Well, it is, it's really very interesting because, of course, um, doing policy and doing laws and uh, is a very practical thing. And as you point out, privacy isn't an absolute human right. So what you're talking about is trading off levels of human right. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Um, and we sort of talk about that in the model law is that when we were coming up with our risk levels, there there's no such thing as a, a zero risk use of facial recognition. Um, we call the, the, the bottom you know the, the the least risky um, uh, version as a as a base level risk because as you say there's always um, going to be a trade off um, usually with with privacy uh, when you're using facial recognition so there should always be some base level protections that are embedded in any kind of system even if the facial recognition is um, you know it's fairly low risk. And if we go back to the issue of uh, Kmart, Bunnings and Goodfellows, um, you you have this distinction about uh, outcomes for individuals that have legal ramifications or have um, basic uh, infringements on their uh, freedom. Yeah, so um, I guess what you're talking to there is the kind of the, the nuts and bolts of how the model law would work. And so... We've come up with um, there's about five different key elements that we think are really crucial for um, developers or deployers of this technology and what they need to think about before they before they develop the technology or, or you know use it on Australians. So this idea of the spatial context of where the technology is going to be used is it going to be in the public? Is it for personal use? Um, the type of facial recognition, so there's three different types of what we were talking about before where um, facial verification is lower risk, um, definitely lower risk than identification or, or facial analysis. Um, and we've also got to take into account things like the performance of the technology um, and again, like you were just saying, whether or not there's an actual decision and, and particularly a legal um, or a similarly significant decision being made about an individual and also consent. You talk a lot about um, open and clear consent from the people that it's being done to. Absolutely, yeah. And consent often comes up um, 
time and time again as being one of the really pivotal areas of, of this conversation. Um, and that's where we can see with, um, with Choice and um, with Bunnings where there was such a big problem because whilst they were saying, oh, look, we, you know, we did put up a notice. It was in the, you know, in the corner on your way in. That's not really real consent, you know, just being able to notify someone without a guarantee that they've actually read that information and been able to um, make an informed decision about whether or not they want to engage with that technology. Um, you know, that, that, that's not real consent. So we've had a lot of conversations in our consultation around um, the idea of, of giving really free and informed consent. And if you don't want to consent to using that technology, then you shouldn't be, um, you know, discriminated against or um, have any kind of a detriment. You should still be able to access goods and services um, in other ways if you don't want to engage with the facial recognition. Just as a matter of interest, do you know why they wanted to do facial recognition? My understanding is that they, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think there are a few different reasons. My understanding is that it was um, a, a loss or a theft prevention mechanism for some of these commercial entities. So, you know, I, I guess the next stage up from the old fashioned, you know, watch out for this customer kind of thing, because they've, you know, tried to shop with in the, in the past and having, you know, a picture behind the front counter that this was actually being used instead as a as a way to identify, um, you know, problem problem customers. Um, but again, that that might have been different from um, organisation to organisation. The what what was it? Uh, Clearview AI is that the name of the company in America? That yeah, yeah, that's right. That's a very interesting uh, case study where they actually scraped a whole lot of uh, images from Facebook and other social media outlets. Makes you wonder what. Um, and it was disallowed without anybody's consent for them to have because they were creating a bank of images. It makes you wonder what mm. uh, what. what um, the bank of images for Kmart, Bunnings and Goodfellows is. <laughs> or are they actively yeah, collecting Yeah, that's right. It? I mean, there are definitely a lot of questions around um, what was in that database and, and you know, whether that they were images that they had collected previously from, from customers or whether they were using another security tool. Um, yeah, there's not, not a lot of clarity um, out about that. Mm. But you, you're, you're calling for the... Uh, Attorney General to uh, take some steps, aren't you? You think that that would be a good way to go? Yeah, that's right. And, and I mean, that's been a big part of um, this whole project since we started at the beginning of the year was making sure that we were bringing um, everyone along on the journey, at least keeping them informed. And, and um, we've had a lot of conversations with government departments and, and also members of parliament throughout the process. Um, and... Ideally, we, we think it's really necessary that um, the government takes this forward uh, as a as a you know pivotal reform agenda. Really, um, there's also a, a separate process of review at, underway at the moment with the Australian Privacy Act, and so we think that this could actually fit in quite nicely with that process. Um, but absolutely, we think that um, with the amount um, of speed with which this technology is evolving. It's um it's really crucial that, that the government takes this seriously and, and comes up with some new and robust laws for Australia. Don't make the woman cry. Don't make the woman doubt. Don't make the woman cry. Don't make the woman doubt. Woman is the bad thing that happened to the world. Woman cry the harmony. Woman bring the joy. 
woman been laughing at? Oh, but a woman, don't believe what I say. You have got it all. Oh, younger woman, don't you doubt? You are beautiful. Oh, the woman, don't you look down? You have done it all. Oh, woman, don't you doubt? You have got it all. Don't let the woman cry. Don't let the woman down. Woman is a bad thing that happens to the world. Woman created harmony, woman bring the joy, woman bring the happiness. Oh, black woman, don't believe what they say, you have got it all. Every woman, don't you doubt, you have got it all. Thank you. From the 1st to the 7th of October in Mianjin, Brisbane, the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance will be held to disrupt and interrupt the efforts of the military-industrial complex who generate conflict as the byproduct of profit. Disrupt Land Forces is a decentralised, intersectional, direct action campaign taking place over seven days through creative and collaborative action in resistance to land forces, the largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. You can hear more about those profiteering off death and destruction and the history of anti-military activism in so-called Australia on 3CR Community Radio in the coming weeks. So head to Mianjin on the 1st to the 7th of October 2022 for the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance. For more information, visit disruptlandforces.org. A 3CR supporter. We've got Zelda on the line. G'day, Zelda. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, thanks, and good morning. Yeah, I, I lost my other call. I don't know where she's gone, but never mind. Maybe Cindy. She's there. actually with me. Oh, great. So we can uh, we can have a chat um, and uh, see how things go. Now you're up there in um, Mianjin, Brisbane. The Disrupt the Land Forces Festival of Resistance has uh, started, uh, and this is in uh, running alongside the. Uh, uh, event, uh, the f- 4 to the 6th Land Forces Largest we- Weapons Expo in the Southern Hemisphere. Can you tell us about uh, the festival first up? Absolutely. So uh, we launched last night with a beautiful Solidarity Fire event. Um, so we had a number of... Um, sorry, someone's just calling my other phone. <laughs> we had um, a number of First Nations speakers around the fire at the Aboriginal Solidarity Embassy in Mountscove Park in Yangon. And we also had on Zoom a number of um, activist friends in West Papua also lighting fires. So we Zoomed the fires together. Uh, we had our West Papuan fires up on a big screen in front of us and we heard their voices um, interacting with the elders' voices from this continent um, and yes, yeah, some songs were shared. Many messages of hope and solidarity and determination were shared. It was 
just a beautiful event. So and that was um, that was our official launch. But then we had our unofficial launch um, a day earlier, when two of our young people managed to jump onto an autonomous killing machine, a sort of mini tank, driverless tank, that they can send out oh into God. the field to yeah, attack mean... soft targets, which is code for humans. Um, and these two young women managed to scramble on top of it despite a huge police presence and do a live stream from on top of that um, killer drone. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Because this uh, expo, as they like to call it, uh, includes people like Boeing, Thales, Remington, NIOA and Lockheed Martin and Albert, these people are actually, these businesses are actually not just uh, uh, weapons manufacturers but perpetuators of conflict. That's right, absolutely. It's in their interest for there to be armed conflict. Um, it's their, that's their, it's a foundation of their business. So um, it's, yeah, it's all about the profits. And without armed conflict and preparation for armed conflict, there's no profit. So, yeah, they're um, they're absolutely in there um, agitating for more expenditure on weapons, so-called national security, which, you know, I, I, nuclear weapons never made me feel particularly secure, um, just to give one example. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's never about defence. Um, it, we, we like to think of it as a tax spending. It's the attack industry, uh, it's the ministry of attack, because um, that's what these weapons are for. They're to tear human bodies apart and devastate ecosystems. It might be interesting for people to uh, have in mind that uh, the Morrison government promised the defence sec- sector an additional, additional $270 billion dollars and that the uh, Albanese government made a pre-election pledge to match that spending. That's an enormous amount of investment in this industry. Yeah, it's $30 billion a year, um, so it works out to about $100 million a day, and that's not money that's going to our um, military or police forces. Um, that's money that's going directly into the hands of private weapons corporations. So it's a gift of our money to weapons corporations to make weapons that they will sell back to us <laughs> to be used against us. And so it's the most heinous sort of misuse of public funds you can imagine. And, of course, um, Cindy um, Malika Bori, who's there beside you, she's uh, come from the uh, West Papuan Highlands with her mother to raise uh, the uh, their voices about how the Australian military uh, spending and these companies' products are being used. That's right. So Cindy uh, Makabor is here with me. And I'll pass you to her in just a moment. But, yeah, just to um, affirm that all of the companies that you mentioned, the Thales, Rome Metal, Boeing, Elbert, Lockheed Martin, they are all selling weapons to Indonesia, and those weapons end up in West Papua, where they drive dispossession and extraction and, of course, tear human bodies apart. 
So I'm going to pass you to Cindy. Thank you. Okay. See you guys, Cindy. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Cindy. Uh, Cindy, thanks for uh, coming on to Solidarity Breakfast. It's a big journey that you've made from West Papua to come to uh, Mianjin. Uh, can you tell us about why it was so important for you to come? Um, yeah, so actually I currently live and reside in Nam, Melbourne. Uh, so I made the travel from Nam, actually. Um, I've been living here in so-called Australia with my mom, who's a human rights activist, so... That was back in 2006 when we arrived in Australia. So, yeah, not so much a big journey for me, but, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but but an important thing to be there, to represent the people from West Papua. Absolutely. You know, um, militarism on this continent has brought genocide and also extractivism and ecocide. And what's happening here in this continent is, the indigenous people of West Papua have, are also experiencing that, you know, where Indonesia destroys our forests and mountains for profit through, you know, economic ventures like the Grassbeck Mine. And, you know, it, it's the world's biggest gold and the third biggest copper mine in the world. And so in order to protect their investments, um, the Indonesian government brings these huge numbers of troops to mostly rural areas where you know, these troops and military, they conduct um, human rights violations and abuses against, you know, Indigenous West Papuans. And this intense militarization has displaced between 60,000 West Papuan refugees where these Indigenous people are becoming refugees in their own land without foreign aid from, you know, international community or NGOs because of the restriction on the island. Um, and, you know, this has been happening in the last four years, yet we don't hear about this in the media, especially here in so-called Australia. And, you know, almost half the residents of Duga village, where mostly the refugees are from, you know, where it's a mountainous region in West Papua in the highlands, and um, they have to abandon their homes, their churches, children have to abandon their schools, their friends, their families, to become refugees in their own land. And so it's great for me to be here last night to sit around Solidarity Fire and have everyone yarning, especially from Indigenous communities, to be able to connect with our West Papuan um, brothers and sisters in West Papua and, you know, share how they resist against this colonial system together and how, you know, this struggle is a shared struggle between the two communities. And it's great to just, you know, hear the stories around the fire and, you know, the fire symbolises this sort of... Um, resistance as well and if we keep that fire burning you know we keep the struggle going and so it's so important to see that solidarity and connection and you know how everyone's here to and also from non-Papuans to be sitting there and as allies and you know be the voice also for those back home that are unable to be you know vocal about what's happening and not having the freedom of speech and the freedom of expression on, in West Papua, and so it's great to see our allies standing in solidarity with us as well. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because you know, uh, having an expo, which is you know, nicey nicey, big, glamorous sort of uh, affair, um, tied to the outrageous um, uh, destruction and dispossession and murder of people. Um, uh, which is basically what the, uh, the parallel uh, demonstration that you're part of is uh, making clear to people. Australia has got blood on its hands because, in relation to this because 
uh, we continue to um, have military and police training programs uh, in Indonesia. So therefore, we're putting the bullet in the gun, really, aren't we? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Australia's helping, you know, funding and training these soldiers who will go back and commit human rights violations and abuses against Indigenous populations, and, you know, with the weapons that are being manufactured here in Australia as well. So, you know, Australia can't stay complicit to what's going on and be ignorant, you know, to what's to the human humanitarian crisis, but also the human rights violations that are happening. You know, to one of the closest neighbours. Like I travel from Nam to Brisbane, and West Papua is much more closer. You know, it's like less than 250 kilometres. So mm. that puts that in perspective. How why are we not hearing about this? And yeah, I mean, Australia must not stay complicit to you know the selling and funding of you know, Indonesian military, like weapons to the Indonesian military, but also training their soldiers as well. Can I speak to Zelda again? Absolutely. Thank you for talking to me. Hey. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the demonstrations are going to continue throughout the um, uh, expo, the... <laughs> The uh, I mean, it's so funny calling it a mix. mix uh, uh, it's like a, a fair, you know, a fair of death. Yeah, the killing fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. Um, and they're all in their nice clothes, uh, pretending that it doesn't really mean death. Uh, but the, you guys are going to continue to raise the issue over the entire expo. So can you give us an idea of what's going to happen? Absolutely. So over the weekend, we're in training mode. We're in the hall, in Jagger Hall, here in Brisbane. Um, come on up. Everyone's very welcome, uh, except no police, thanks, but everyone else is very <laughs> welcome um, to come and join us. So we'll be um, workshopping and we're, we've got an array of creative tactics that we want to roll out um, during the week. Um, Monday, because it's the Queen's birthday holiday here in, in Queensland, in not the Queensland, um, so Monday we're having an Eat the Rich banquet to celebrate the death of Her Royal Travesty. Um, and um, and then we'll be doing a procession down to land forces while they're all bumping in all their wares, all their tech. They like to call it innovation and cutting edge. You know, I like to remember that the edge that they're cutting is, is our skin. That's the edge that they're cutting with their technology. Um, then Tuesday, when the um, expo actually opens, we'll be holding a large public rally. Um, we've got some awesome speakers lined up for the rally. And from Tuesday through till when the last arms dealer has left, we'll maintain a presence outside and around the hall. And we'll be looking to get in their way as much as we can. Um, have you had any uh, um, response from police? Yes. <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> yeah, they're humbugging us for, you know, details of everything. Um, we've put in about 25 um, assembly notices um, telling us, you know, every time we want to go and buy an ice cream, um, every time we might want to take a walk down to South Bank, we've let them know in advance. Um, but that didn't stop them... Um, you know, really harassing us on Thursday night. They put a drone over the hall 
Uh, they put police on foot around Musgrave Park, around the Sovereign Embassy and around the hall, and they put a vehicle in the driveway and um, were breath-testing everyone who came in and out and licence-checking everyone who came in and out. So I had just picked up Uncle Ned Hargraves. Uncle Ned, or Jumpy Jimper, is an elder from Yundamu. Um, he is the person who convened the um, Karinjala Mwajari campaign or police ceasefire campaign, advocating for disarming police, no more guns in police communities. Um, they've had that terrible experience in Yundamu mm. of the police shooting dead a young person, Kumanjai Walker, in his bedroom. You know, it's traumatised the whole community and Uncle Ned's been this vocal opponent of um, policing in, in remote communities and especially police weapons. So I had just picked up Uncle Ned from the airport and taken Uncle Ned to Jagaran Hall. And w- Uncle Ned had three exposures to police within the first oh, hour. God. So it's really unconscionable um, harassment from the police to people who, like us, you know, we have a we have a vow to harm no living being. So we are, we are not going to harm any living beings. And to see 10 fully kitted up police um, with their weapons, pulling those two young women off the killer robot was like, you know, 10 police. And I just thought, wow, they, they really want to protect those weapons, don't they? Mm. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Says it all, really. Well, uh, more strength to your arm. And we'll, uh, at 3CR, every uh, 8 a.m., every breakfast, we'll be uh, at touching base, hopefully. Fantastic. We'd love it. Yeah. Good on you, Zelda. All right. And people can look at Wage Peace Facebook. It's Wage Peace AU on Facebook. And it's Disrupt Wars on Instagram. Um, we're also on Twitter under Wage Peace AU. Um, so, yeah, you'll get the what's happening as it's happening on our social channels. And we love it to hear from you. We love it when you um, comment and share our work and it lets us know that, you know, we're being felt. So, yeah, please jump on and, and, and add your voice there. We see you. Thank you. Stacks on the mill in the dirt I saw Roddy fall 
Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on the 3CR. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when op toss out your data, yes, 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 and yes, it stopped up big time, opt us or opt you. No, no, all the you's, the stuffed up. Many who had not been customers for more than a decade, but no probs, because parent companies sing tell the world your details, said it's sorry and was backing opt toss out Supremo Kelly Bayer Ross Moore in the proverbial, who said it was victim of a sophisticated attack. While the government reckoned it was lack security, but in fairness to Singtel, the world and Kelly, it must have been a sophisticated lack security, making it grossly unfair that governments are demanding that opt toss out yes pay the costs of dragging their customers and ex-customers out of the proverbial a mere 9.8 million opt use now exposed to potential fraud. For goodness sake, they said they were sorry. Isn't that good enough? And, and we can be sure they are feeling sorry for themselves. On which, that's a mere 9.8 million, we suspect, likely to become very quickly ex-customers. But their information will remain with Optos out. Not that it matters, because everyone else will have it as well anyway. And, and imagine how many new customers will be lining up to say, yes, yes, yes. 
Also imagine how distressed poor Kelly and poor Singh Telva must have felt when a tech journalist came up with an unthinkable blunder of monumental proportions, one that a high school student shouldn't make. If anything, a slight on high school students. For Rions, the refusal of the National Honour and Glorify Train Killing Museum even to acknowledge that the first peoples of this country were slaughtered in the frontier wars has been a slight on that warmongering body with its supreme, supremo Brendan Nil Memorial son adamant that slaughter on home soil was not real train killing, not worthy of glorifying, mainly because there was... Well, nothing to glorify, and then along comes a three-part series, The True Blue Aussie Wars, and after but two episodes, the honour and glorify train-killing lot suddenly see the writing on the wall and declare there will be writing on the wall as they spend millions to increase their honour and glorification of train-killing. They will acknowledge the slaughter and theft, as this week's episode highlighted a young mother enjoying a walk on the beach with her daughter and a friend, shot in the back by a white settler and then, finding she hadn't died, smashed to death with an axe, the murder exonerated because to charge the settler might deter other settlers and coppers and train killers from slaughtering the indigenous defending their stolen lands. Fast forward to now, and a northern true Luwazi... Sorry, a copper, an ex-train killer, Zachary Rolfe, who boasts how he enjoys bashing and hurting people, shoots a young indigenous man in cold blood and then, when he is not yet dead, shoots him again and then is exonerated by an all-white jury, showing how far we have moved on. Thankfully, we are moving on in addressing climate change, if there is such a thing, with the socialists set to introduce a safeguard mechanism aimed at curbing emissions from Trublawazi's 215 biggest polluters. Quite sensibly, a voluntary scheme to help us reach the 43% reduction by 2030 target. Voluntary scheme. The 215 biggest polluters must be shaking in their boots. Well, they're Swiss leather shoes, but there is one problem. Cutting polluting, albeit only a little bit, will cost money. And the big polluters led by Wood Profit Side Energy has come up with a with a, have come up with a logical solution. The public purse should finance the costs of not polluting, because it's not like the big big polluters have made fortunes creating the problem they're now being asked voluntarily to do a little bit about. See, cutting pollution will give overseas rivals an unfair advantage. Forget the minor fact that many of the overseas rivals are the same companies, and good, good news, we can all rest a little easier now. The Minister for 43% Less Pollution, Chris Bowen to Capital, has bowed to Capital and announced trade-exposed industrial firms may be offered taxpayer-funded financial support. Phew! Oh, and no need to mention, but the big polluters all say they want nothing more than to reduce their big pollution. But it's most unreasonable if we also have to pay for it. Highlighting the win-win social benefits of corporate welfare and exposing the waste in squandering that money on, well, on doll budgets, for instance. And thank goodness the socialists have not responded as quickly to calls for that retrograde welfare to be increased. Although, more correctly, they did respond just as quickly, rejecting the proposal. 
Good to see an anti-corruption commission bill finally hitting Parliament, although disturbing that caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, says it gets the right, you know, like balance. That's a worry. Also worried, Pete's coalition sidekick, Hayseed and Cheap Shit Party Supremo David Little to be proud of, complaining that the socialists are obsessed with alleged pork barrelling by the coalition and denying, quite properly denying, there was any pork barrelling at all. As proven by the Auditor General, who looked at one community development fund, although he was a bit critical, a slight suggestion there might have been a, a touch of pork barrelling, but the figures don't show that. Why coalition and marginal seats picked up as little as 137 million, while Socialist Party seats copped a massive whopping 34 million? Can't spot any imbalance there. 19.8% of the grants to the socialists. What, what are they complaining about? It's almost 20%. David, little to be proud of, is spot on. They're obsessed. So hard to see how the Auditor General could suggest such a thing. Related matter, two retired beaks reckon all those last-minute pre-election appointments by then-attorney General Macalia Costa workers to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and extension of appointments which didn't expire for eons are probably illegal, making their decisions illegal. For instance, former caring business class party senator Karen Sinan, a real name, a non-judicial deputy president whose term at half a million a year was due to expire in December 2023, was extended by good old Michaela to May 2027. But poor independent Karen must have been so distressed at the publication of a picture showing her home, her very, very expensive looking home, most definitely not in a working class suburb, as someone had placed a huge, huge Josh Friedem Icebergs election poster on her front fence just to prove her independence, which obviously inspired Michaela. An ANU survey showed that political right-wingers are least likely to receive their third or fourth booster COVID vaccine. So that's promising. Also promising, our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Penny Left Wing's assertion that True Blue Aussie will fight to free Professor Sean Turnell, sentenced to three years imprisonment in Myanmar, for the heinous crime of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, will not give up until he is released. Promising... Yes, promising, because obviously Penny Left Wing will just as vigorously argue and relentlessly pursue the release of Julian Assange by His Most Gracious Majesty's home country and our father country, the US of the UN of the US of the world, facing imprisonment for on or ongoing incarceration for the heinous crime of exposing US of war crimes, trained killer crimes. Interesting that, trained killer crimes in a war that is, was a war crime itself. War crime upon war crime. That's got to deserve 175 years in the slammer. But Penny will see justice is served. Rotting in his isolation cell, Julian must so appreciate the magnificent support he has and is receiving from the True Blue Aussie government. 
making it hard to believe why all these long-haired, commie, greedy, wooden worker and iron lots are carrying on trying to disrupt that gathering of responsible merchants of death in Brisbane, the Land Forces Weapons Expo, displaying the lethal simplicity with which their merchants of death products can facilitate train-killing crimes, war crimes, the very stuff of maintaining our security against um, against uh, well against that which can't be named uh, unless you're Constable Duffer of course who knows we must invade that which he can name evil evil China guaranteed to be yet another great military success story Despite the ACTU Secretary Sally McManus telling the National Press Club it had reached a deal with the Business Profits Council over simplifying the better off overall test in return for a simplified system for wage increases, the usual suspect caring employer unions, the good unions, were distressed at the threat of strike action in multi-employer bargaining rules. Expressed with his renowned articulate logic by our old mate and week that was regular, Innes will cost the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group. Multi-employer agreement strikes will cost jobs, harm business and disrupt the community. Make no mistake, the demand today by Sally McManus that workers need the unfettered right to strike in support of new multi-employer pay claims would take True Blue Aussie back to the industrial chaos of the past. Oh, when we hear that, we realise yet again what an evil force the unions, the bad unions, not good unions like Innes's good union, are. Forget that Sally McManus argued there would not be more industrial action. Hell, we, we don't want to let the facts get in the way when finally we face crashing back to the industrial chaos of the past. Remember that? Wharfies queuing up each day to see if they had a job, a job when they did get a day's work that saw many of them killed and injured. Ditto construction workers forced to work in unsafe conditions with low pay, old and worn before their time. Oh yes, those unions have a lot to answer for. Evil union officials like Clary O'Shea jailed for being evil union officials. Worse, the vast majority of workers belonging to an evil union. Oh yes, Innes, we don't. The disrupted community doesn't want a return to that chaos. Good morning. Yes, good morning, Kevin. And uh, we've got Sue Thompson on the line. G'day, Sue, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, we're talking to you because of your film, Undercover. Fantastic film, a great uh, piece of uh, work to uh, bring to people's attention the uh, issue of increasing homelessness in older women. Yeah, thank you. Um, You took an approach of... uh, uh, Delving into the lives of particular people, which uh, is very compelling, I'll have to say. Oh, I'm absolutely delighted because sometimes when I speak to people, they don't actually watch the film, so it sounds like you actually watched it. (laughs) That's pretty outrageous, isn't it? Well, you know, I don't know. You tell me. You're a journalist too. I think some people are incredibly busy and they watch the trailer, they read the notes that accompany the film, and then they talk to me and I kind of fill them in, but I can tell it's always interesting and delightful when someone has actually watched the film. Well, it was a great coup to get Margot Robbie to do the um, <laughs> uh, the text and the narrative. Um, not only is she a good actor, but she's a good woman, quite clearly. 
Yeah, I mean, and what I really love about Margot's voice, it's funny, when I actually had to record her a couple of times, I had to say, no, you're saying that sounds really American. And she <laughs> said, oh, my God, because I'm practising my accent over here now and I, you know, I, I don't live in Australia full time. But I kind of like it has got a funny sort of intonation at times, but it gives it... Um, What's the word of it? Like, it gives it sort of a human, real tone. She doesn't do it, like, it's not too formal. It's quite conversational. And I'm, you know, I'm just blown out by that. And, yeah, can you imagine how I felt? It's been two years sort of talking to her um, Australian agents. And initially, when we reached out, you know, we thought, there's no way Margot Robbie is going to narrate a little documentary from downtown Melbourne. And, you know... She wanted to look at the past films that I'd done and my co-producer had done, and we, so we sent that. And then she wanted to read the treatment, and so we sent that. And then she wanted to look at the narration. And once we, she asked that, we thought, oh, my God, maybe she's going to do it. And so she read through it, and she actually gave us notes. Then she said, yes, I'll do it. And then she said, I want to, you know, change a couple of lines in your narration or, you know, words. And we thought, wow, she really is reading this. And then, you know, on the day, of course, I had all these new lines because I thought, oh, shit, I'm, you know, I need her to say this. And she just did it. You know, she was just so friendly and said, thank you for making this film. I didn't actually understand this and I'm really shocked it's happening. And, you've, you know, the fact that you're bringing attention to it, I'm really proud to put my name to it. Well, there you go. That's what I said. Good actor, good woman. And that's yeah. why this is a very fine film because uh, it's sort of a little bit reminiscent and I keep forgetting the name of the film, the uh, Academy Award winning film about uh, the Grey Nomad with uh, Frances McDermott in it, um, in in a way, because there is this uh, gentle... It's called Nomadland. Nomadland, right. Nomad. Right. Nomad. And no, then you're in nomad. Yeah, yeah, yeah nomad. nomad. And and, and yeah. there's there's a certain um, ebb and flow in your film because it, it's uh, dictated by the personalities of the women that you follow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I suppose I didn't ever set out. You know, when you're a documentary filmmaker, you don't set out to put words in people's mouths. You have an idea, or you understand that this issue is massive, and I wanted to expose that. But what I also decided to do, because I interviewed a whole lot of, you know, politicians and experts and people working in business. And, and in the end, I realised, um, I mean, I interviewed 17 women and I think there's 10 in the film because I had to touch so many people. But I decided I don't care about what those experts are saying. These women all have very different stories, very different perspectives. They have a very similar lived experience, but the more of them that can share their story with us, the better, you know. Yeah, yeah, I thought so too. I, I was really relieved. I, I thought because uh, it's hard not to follow this story because at 3CR we do actually uh, know about homeless, you know, this issue of homelessness, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you actually, uh, I mean, you spent two years making this and you obviously became friends with these people. All my films, I, I mean, I don't necessarily become friends with everyone, but um, I form a relationship and I share parts of my life and I try and be as honest as possible about who I am and what I'm setting out to do. And, you know, because I have to build trust. But with this film, I'm an older woman and I was making a film that really related to me and my life. I've worked in the arts since I was about, you know, 17, 18. I have no superannuation. 
I've worked my whole life. I've raised kids. If it wasn't for having a stable relationship, I absolutely know I would be in a very similar situation. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's. I can. It, you know, it, it, I really related to this because it could um, be me. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. The film. The film is uh, about. Uh, uh, older women in Australia basically having to uh, find places to live because they are being left high and dry, effectively. And and yes, exactly. And it's interesting when hearing you describe it like that because even though in all the publicity and press people talk about it, it's film about homelessness, but what these women do, and I can say I'd probably do the same, I can't pay my rent, I can't pay a mortgage, I've been staying with my children or friends for a while. Okay, I'm going to go on a little trip, you know, so I'll drive to a caravan park in a nice part of Australia that I've always wanted to go to. And they basically become transient, don't they? And they move around quite a bit without actually saying, I'm homeless until the point, like Susan, for example, who had, you know, undiagnosed bipolar and and she realised she actually had stayed in her flat for a month because she was too scared to leave. And a friend said to her, you've got to ring women's housing, for example. But, yeah, these women don't call themselves... Well, they often avoid the word homeless because there's that stigma and shame attached to it. Uh, It's interesting, isn't it? Stigma and um, uh, shame shame, uh, related to poverty. You know what I mean? Like, or social inability, uh, uh, society is la- society's lack. That's basically Absolutely. it. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. That's what this film shows you. We live in a very rich country and um, a certain, there are people who are filthy rich and the rest of us are sort of hanging in there. And then there's this group that, what, we're just going to ignore? We're just going to say, oh, well, bad luck. You worked your whole life. Um, you've done incredible things. You've contributed to society, but you know what? Society doesn't care about you. That's what it feels like. Yeah, that's what it feels like. But also, I'll tell you what about this film, Undercover, is that um, these these women are really fascinating people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find them really fat. Now, like that woman who uh, who was, uh, she must be in her early 70s. Mm. And, and, you know, the long-term relationship she w- was in just turned around and said, piss off. <laughs> oh, Ma- Mary, isn't that unbelievable? And the way she tells it. I know. <laughs> he just said, yeah, off piss you off. go, that's it, it's done. Yeah. And it's like, she's been with him for... <clears throat> 24 years. 24 years, there you go. And, and and as she said, you know, I thought we were going to be together forever. I just, horrible, really horrible. Yeah, fascinating she's stuff. She's not, she's 84 years old. Oh, right, yeah, right. She's just, yeah. she's just, t- and her story too, the way you were able to encapsulate people's stories was amazing. This is a remarkable film and um, I'm, I know we have to finish because I've, I've, Always go over time, you know. Yeah, um, sorry. But no, sorry. no, it wasn't you. You, I, I, I'm, I would spend endless amounts of time talking to you about this film because it's so beautifully put together and crafted. It's not just the story, but it's actually the crafting and the characters of the people and what it oh, actually, so what, what it actually divulges about their personal lives and also about 
putting a mirror up against Australian society. Um, it's going to be released on uh, the 6th of October and it's going through the Palace Cinemas. Yeah, and a, a few others. Yeah, I think it's at Palace Nova, um, it's at Westgarth. I, look, yeah, a few Yeah, of them. all so over the place. Five, five cinemas, which is incredible for a doco, I have to say, and I'm incredibly pleased about that. So, yeah, yeah hopefully a few people can go and see it. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you very much for spending some time with us. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate the support. Yeah, good film. Okay, see you. Yeah, yeah, great film. And uh, if uh, you uh, do go down to the um, Palace Cinemas to uh, see the film, Undercover, I tell you, it's a it's a really worth going to see. Uh, $5 of every ticket sold um, is going to go to the Australian National Homeless Collective. Uh, great film, Undercover, put it in your diary. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, we're going to finish up with uh, I went down to the Kof, uh if that's how you say it, I don't know, um, K-N-A-U-F, Knuff, uh plasterboard. Now, Knuff plasterboard is, dominates the plasterboard market. It's a German company. It bought up uh, the Borrell outfit in Port Melbourne and uh, it's it, as I said, dominates the plasterboard market both here and internationally. And its reported revenue for last year was five hundred plus million dollars for the last financial year. But they can't upgrade their safety uh, systems at the plant in Port Melbourne, and they want to drive down wages by casualising the workforce. Uh, people have been working there for 20 years, you know. It's it's a ludicrous and uh, undermining process that they're going through. So I went down and had a chat with the workers. They've been on the grass for 13 days. You guys have been negotiating for quite a while. Yeah, so we ended up starting the negotiations in May. The EBA expired on the 1st of June. We had about probably ele- uh, eight meetings before we came to a stalemate and we then started to apply for protected action. We've now been out on the grass for 13 days and we were doing rolling stoppages for about a week before that. So we've been trying to negotiate better wages and better conditions. So some of the things that the boys have been really passionate about is also maintaining their job security. So in the last CBA there was clauses one that um, kept the job security of full-time employees and limited the amount of casuals and labour hire workers that they can use on site. The management have now taken that out of their current offer and they want to be able to use labour hire as often and as much as they please. So we're fighting against that. We want to maintain the security that we currently have and we're not going to go go back to the table until management um, fix that labour hire clause that they've removed and um, make sure that our members have the right to the overtime and also any other positions vacant. One, one, one of the things that happens in America is, and it's creeping in here, where they have uh, different uh, pay scales for different people doing exactly the same work. Is, do you see this as being a, uh, a doorway to that? Oh, absolutely. And that has already happened. So we've got a handful of labour hire and casual employees currently that work here and they are employed on lower wages than what our full-time employees enjoy. So if they do want to use labour hire, we want to see them getting paid the same as the workers that are currently already 
employed full-time by Canal. Now there's other issues, aren't there? There's safety issues because plasterboard is actually lots of particulates and this is a very uh, concerning area of safety. Yeah, absolutely. So even before the picket line started, the the plan had been shut down for around three weeks and that was purely because of safety issues. Um, WorkSafe had been in here and issued quite a few pin notices that they needed to work through. Um, this is a pretty old plan. They haven't really spent a lot of capital in keeping up with the safety and the maintenance of a lot of the 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 plant that they use in there. Um, so the mill it's, itself is where they create the gypsum and to send through to the, the board plant. Um, they've I mean, you see the photos on Facebook. It's absolutely atrocious how much dust and and uh, additives just are actually in the air. It's co- it covers all of the fire extinguishers, the light switches, and this is stuff that the guys breathe in day in, day out. Sometimes the dust was so thick that it actually created a fog. And Canal, well, it was Borrell at that point, allowed the workers to actually work in that, and it's just disgraceful. Has WorkSafe had anything to say about this? Yeah, they've had plenty. So one of the pin notices was to ensure that the dust was minimised before they started up. They have had third-party contractors in there vacuuming and cleaning as much dust up as they possibly can. But what they really need to do is get the process running so they can understand where that dust is actually being generated from. And they haven't done that. They've been shut down for almost six weeks now. And instead of having people in there and fixing the safety and the processes while we're out on the grass, they've just basically locked everybody out. Um, which is going to force the boys once we get back into the gate to work in those same unsafe conditions. This is our 13th day of being locked out and prior to that we were doing, a, I think it was about a week's worth of rolling stoppages where we were doing two hours through the day and the night and then we mixed it up to one hour stoppages and two hour stoppages depending on the department. How are the guys going? The guys are going really well. It's really great to see the solidarity between the membership. Um, every day we're turning up at 6am, rain, hail or shine. Yeah, and it did rain. The other oh, day. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. This morning was horrendous. It's a great day today. So the spirits are really good. I think um, they see a lot of support from the community and from other businesses. We've had lots of wood donated to keep the fire going. We had a whole heap of... Um, Fruit and veggie donated yesterday. We've also had other um, organisations come down and supply tea and coffee for us and it's just been really great, the support that we've been showing just from the wider community and also the union movement. Uh, Has Canal done anything yet? No, they're just keeping quiet at the moment. We have not heard a thing from them. Uh, More uh, community support? Yeah, yep. um, Canal has sent out some text messages offering counselling services but apart from that I mean they've done absolutely nothing to support the boys throughout this process. Now this is an international company right? Yes they're based in Germany. Yeah right. Can we speak to some of the boys? Yeah let's go find some of our delegates. Well I'm from 3CR and I'm keen to uh, find out how you're feeling and what's going on. Yep pretty um pretty upbeat here. Um, it's, it is what it is you know fighting for our rights uh, but yeah everything's sort of yeah, well it's a big it, it, it's a big it, big step to take protected action yep. uh, so uh, and you know and it's food on the table and all the rest of it but it's obviously come to a head whatever it is that's really uh, causing the trouble for the workers yeah it's um, 
a lot of labour hire. They're wanting to get a labour hire in, which is our job security gone. So trying to push that message that we, we want... Uh, we want a... Uh, well, I know they offered you sort of an increase, but that doesn't real, that's just papering over, right? No, it's conditions we're fighting for. So we're after conditions more than, more than what the money is. Yeah, yeah. job security. It's about yeah. job security. Is there much difference between this, uh, peop- these, this owner and the previous owner? Um, we haven't really seen much of this owner. This is the first we've had to sort of do with them. So, yeah, not really much to do yet with them. Yeah, yeah, OK. What are you hoping for? Um, they've been saying the family message a lot there, but we're not really not seeing that from them. So we'd love like to see us included in their family message more. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thank you. G'day, Bill. Um, you want to have a word with me about? I'm from PCR, and I'd like to know. PCR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's going on here for you? Uh, well, we're here, sort of. Uh, well, not sort of. We're here fighting for our rights. We just want a deal. Um, We've tried negotiating with them, four and a half months of uh, nothing. They didn't want to uh, even entertain what, what we were suggesting or, 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 or saying and um, pretty much have locked us out ultimately. Um, and we're all here committed to not accept the deal that they're going to give us until we get what we want. There are a couple of key issues, aren't there? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the labour hire is the big one. Um, it's not about the money. Uh, we all come to work for money, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's about the conditions, ultimately. Yeah, just this place, um, um, uh, people have fought the EBA, and um, we need to keep fighting it for, for our legacy. So we'll... How long have you been working here? Uh, I'm, I'm new compared to a lot of the people, three years. Yeah, yeah, and um, so uh, the, the attitude of the workers in general have been quite staunch, hasn't it? Oh, yeah, uh, 100%. I mean, we're, we're here together, we're here every day and we'll get through it together. Were you surprised that they locked you out? Uh, yeah, I was actually. I was because, um, we, okay, we had a industrial reaction in place um, and that didn't even... Uh, go for more than a week and they they locked us out straight away so they weren't willing to negotiate. Have you been getting a lot of community support? Um, we have been from, uh, we've getting, been getting a lot of support from the CMFU, um, Communist Party that's here and uh, the Socialists, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. well we'll see what happens. I hope so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, we're talking about why you're here and um, how long have you been working here? I've been here for six years. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, it used to be Borrell. It's now a new company. Yes, Canal. Yes. Canal. And um, actually, there's some serious issues that are, are, prop, are uh, happening here, aren't there? A lot of uh, safety issues. Yeah, a lot of safety. We've actually been shut down for three weeks. Um, we've got fibreglass issues. We've got uh, traffic management issues. Uh, first aid issues. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of safety issues. So in the mill, um, dust issues. So a lot of they uh, shut the mill down for three weeks and got commercial uh, commercial uh, vacuums in to, to clean it out. So and then pretty much went back and uh, they've locked us out now. So yeah. yeah. Were you surprised that they locked you out? I was. I, I I was expecting to be locked out, but not this early. So uh, just the EBA that they've offered us their casual clause. Uh, it's, it's, it's not good for us. It's not good for uh, job security. So, yeah, a lot, of, uh, a lot of angry boys on the line here. In, in America, uh, a lot of these companies are trying to have 
uh, people work, working, doing the same job, but different rates of pay. Yep. Are you seeing that? Is that what you're expecting from them? Kind of, yeah. Yeah, they'll um, get a lot of labour hire in. Uh, it jeopardises our full-time employment, I believe. So uh, I really enjoy this job. It's a good good, good job to work for, a good bunch of blokes. But uh, to get the uh, casuals in on the line, it's it's not a it's not good for us long long term. Yeah, it also, uh, it's to do with you know getting people at the drop of a hat. Exactly right, exactly. And then uh, full timers, at least we've got a bit of job security. If they get casuals in, they don't like them. They can move them on, get someone else. There's someone else in line to come in. So and no sick pay. And no, no sick pay. Yeah, no no holiday leave. leave. Yeah, exactly right. So cheaper, cut down all the overtime. So yeah, yeah, it's not good. This, this is actually a really touchstone issue you guys are fighting for. It is, it is. Um, I believe if we didn't, if this casual clause was taken out, I don't think we'd be out on the grass. I think that's money is an issue, but um, the casual clause is a the biggest biggest issue I believe on the line at the moment. So yeah, bit of class warfare going on here. Absolutely, absolutely. They tried it in the last EBA. We had an old plant manager that brought labour hire in thinking that they could run the line while we were uh, doing rolling stoppages and he didn't last long after we won the fight. So yeah, yeah. so hopefully we stay strong and we'll win this fight and we'll keep the casuals out. Now there, there must be a uh, fighting fund, is there? Do you want people to... Uh... Oh, absolutely, I believe there is a fighting fund. So hopefully uh, all the unions out there, they're getting some money for us. But uh, we don't, our opponent, CSR, was out just before Christmas last year and they had a fighting fund. So a lot of guys went over to their line and supported them, donated to them. And I know a few of their boys have come over here today and supporting us. So yeah, yeah, the fighting fund would be good. And people to come down and say hello to you. Absolutely, absolutely. Drop by, say hello, get get to know the boys. Um, we had people drop f uh, fresh fruit off yesterday, so that was good. Uh, unions always here. We've got the Socialist Party here. Uh, yeah, no, so it's, it's really uh, encouraging to see the, the community come out and support us. Uh, yeah, I'm from 3CR and I'm collecting uh, some information about this lockout. Can you give me your impressions? My impressions is... All these boys here have all got mortgages, they've got a whole lot to do here, right? All we're asking for a little wee piece of the pie, like, look up there, 6%. That's all we want, and we want one little clause taken out of the EBA, and we'll all be back at work. So if this company can just come to the party, we're all laughing. Thanks. Yeah, and that's the end of the show. Uh, 47 Turner Street in Port Melbourne, 6 to 2 p.m. during the week. There is the picket, go along. And uh, uh, Canalf, that's K-N-A-U-F forward slash lockout forward slash fund dot raisley dot com forward slash. And I'll put that on the podcast listing. Uh, that's for the Fighting Fund. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. And we'll go out with Kate Virgo, Sweet Kiss of Death. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.